Yeah, so good. Hey, if you've got your Bibles, open up to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We'll be there in just a minute. 2 Timothy chapter 1. We started 2023 with a fresh call to clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands and a pure heart is the lifestyle foundation for every person aspiring to be a true follower and disciple of Jesus. Clean hands and a pure heart is also essential for perfecting holiness. Although Romans 3.23 does say all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The only reason any of us can have clean hands and a pure heart is because of what Jesus did for us through his life, through his death, and his resurrection. And guess what? Even now, that same Jesus ever lives to intercede for us as our advocate with the Father. Once we surrender the control of our lives to the Lordship of Jesus, that surrender is meant to be unremitting for the rest of our lives as we continue to work out our salvation. And five months into the 24th year of our fellowship, I still have enlarge, stretch out, do not hold back, lengthen and strengthen, resonating in my heart and spirit, frequenting my daily perceptions and bouncing around in my mind. What does double portion increase look like? And what is it that God invited each of us into partnership with him? What's that look like? Romans 1.17 says, for in the gospel, a continual revelation, say continual revelation, in the gospel, a continual revelation of God's righteousness is revealed and unveiled. A perfect righteousness given to us when we believe. But a righteousness that moves us from receiving life through faith to the power of living by faith and from faith into more faith. This weekend, we're going to begin working our way through the book of 2 Timothy. And as we do... I'll begin highlighting several things related to steadfast faithfulness. Second Timothy was the last letter that Paul wrote, and he wrote it not too long before his execution. A few years earlier, having asked Timothy to settle in and pastor the growing fellowship of believers uh, who were living in Ephesus, Paul had written a first letter to Timothy, and that letter is a mixture of challenges, uh, personal words, uh, corporate do's and don'ts, things that were related to continuing the work and planting and establishing the work there in Ephesus. My life application study Bible refers to 2 Timothy as Paul's famous last words. Paul's famous last words. As Paul passed his torch of leadership to Timothy, he reminded Timothy of several important things and their importance continues to be relevant and timely for us today. 2 Timothy 1, beginning with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois, and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded, now lives in you also. Timothy was a third generation believer, and he became a primary bridge from the apostolic period. Timothy's father was probably a Greek unbeliever, but through the influence of his grandmother and mother, 
Timothy was raised with a solid Jewish training in the scriptures, which then became and grew into a sincere faith in Jesus. In 1 Timothy, Paul referred to Timothy as my true son in the faith. Timothy was so committed to the work of the gospel, he was circumcised as an adult in order to avoid offending the Jews that Paul was targeting on his mission endeavors. That's all in. That's all in. Timothy was part of the evangelization of Macedonia and Achaia. He was with Paul during his years in Ephesus. One of his visits to Paul prompted the letter to Thessalonica. He was the courier who delivered Paul's letter to Corinth. He was on the team for Paul's second and third missionary journeys. He'd even made a visit to Philippi on Paul's behalf before agreeing to become the resident pastor in Ephesus. If we read past grace, mercy, and peace, we read past those phrases as just like introductory New Testament Bibleese. I think we miss the depth of what was originally intended as well as what can still be released and imparted through our words and through our conversation and through our prayers today. The Passion says, I pray for a greater release. Say, a greater release. I pray for a greater release of God's grace, mercy, and total well-being to flow into your life from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Words have power. Words have power. I'm finding myself over the last several weeks before I got into this study in just responses to people that were asking me to pray for them uh, here as well as in other places. They would send me a text or something, and I've been finding myself speaking grace, speaking mercy, speaking peace to people uh, in those different circumstances and situations. Grace is the empowering presence of God that enables us to be who we're created to be so we can do what we're created to do. It's not just some church word. Grace is codenamed for the Holy Spirit. We speak grace to people. We are releasing the Holy Spirit into their lives. Mercy is an appeal, I think, to the very core of who God is. In his mercy, he never treats us as our sins deserve for us to be treated. But even better than that, in his mercy, he always treats us better than we could ever earn or deserve. And, and what Lisa was just sharing this morning, sometimes you meet people in those situations, you speak his mercy over them. That's what you need to receive, his mercy. They're holding a standard against him that God's not even holding against him. Let it go. Receive his mercy. And then this word for peace, uh, it, in, in the uh, Passion, it said total well-being. It means being joined to peace being joined to prosperity. It can also mean being joined to quietness and being joined to rest. It can even mean being set at one internally. You know, you know anybody in your life today that could benefit from being set at one internally? I suggest the person you look at in the mirror this morning is number one on your list. But God brings people across our path every day that would benefit from having this peace settle inside of them. And I'm telling you, sometimes you just have to look yourself in the mirror and say, peace to you. Peace to you. You might not hear it from somebody else, but you can speak it to yourself and it's powerful. But then God's going to bring people across our paths, is bringing people across our paths. When he, when he sent the disciples out, he said, give that peace away. It's not something to be hoarded. It's not something to be kept ourselves. He gives us his peace to give it away. Well, what happens if they don't want it? 
Jesus said, well, just take it back. Dust your feet off and go find somebody else to give it to. Don't be all upset about, well, they didn't want my peace. I tried to give them my peace and they went to, oh, get over your bad self. Just take it back and go find somebody who does want it. That's what Jesus said to do. And as we give our peace away, he gives us more peace to give to other people. Now, we know that Paul was a very driven person. And from my reading of the Bible, I think that a lot of times he was not the easiest person in the world to be around. However, when you read through his New Testament writings in chronological order, that's not the way they show up in, in the Bible. But when you read them in chronological order, like we got to do when we were doing Immerse a couple of years ago, and it lays it out that way. Uh, in chronological order, there is a growing humility and humanity that's reflected in his letters. And in 2 Timothy, the last letter he wrote, I think we get a glimpse into Paul's end of the journey softer side. The message says it this way, I miss you a lot, especially when I remember that last tearful goodbye. That precious memory triggers another, your honest faith and what a rich faith it is handed down from your grandmother Lois to your mother Eunice and now to you. Written from near isolation in a Roman prison, Paul was really missing his young protege. They had a lot of shared ministry experiences together. Paul had invested a lot of time and effort in training Timothy. Even so, I love how Paul acknowledged that he had only added the last part to Timothy's sincere faith. Paul recognized and honored the fact that Timothy was part of a continuing legacy of steadfast faithfulness. In the Passion, it says it this way, it's clear that you're following in the footsteps of their godly example. How many people here today are the first believer that you know of in your family line? The first one to give your life to Christ in your family line? Yeah, it happened last night too, a handful of people last night. Listen, you're breakers. You are a breaker. What's happening with you is God is reversing curses that have been going down through your family line. And with you, as you turn your life to Christ, you are loosing a thousand generations of blessings. And I, I woke up during the night thinking about this because I said that last night. And I just want to say to you, wherever you are in your life spectrum, that moment that you chose to give your life to Christ, nobody else in your family had, but you chose it, was like a ripple in the pond. And it is rippling through the generations, forward and backwards. There's things that God is doing through that, and it's an ever-increasing circle. And so I want to encourage you, hold on, chase after the Lord. You are making a difference. You've changed things for your generational line. Well done. Well done. And we thank the Lord for bringing you to him. I was blessed to grow up in church my whole life. I, 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 even in the womb, I was in church. And so I so bless and honor those of you that, that you're, the, you're the one, you're the breaker that started it for your family. Now, I also know there's a lot of us in the room today that are where we are because we had praying grandmothers and praying mothers. How many have a praying grandmother and mother that you made a difference in your life? Uh, in a book series that we read to our kids uh, when they were younger called Tales of the Kingdom, there's a chapter in there talking about praying grandmothers, and they call them vigilante grannies. And I'm telling you, that is still a ministry that is powerful. And if you're one of them, stay after it, because your prayers are availing much. However we got our introduction to Jesus, the truth is that we are all building on a legacy of the faith of others who've gone before us. We're building on a legacy of faith of others who've gone before us. Some people paid a great price 
so we can experience and express our faith freely and openly in Jesus like we are this morning. That reality should provoke a sense of gratitude in us as well as a desire to pay it forward. What kind of faith and godly example are we passing on to those who are coming behind us? One of the things that uh, Cindy and I have prayed together for many years for our kids and now for our grandkids, our five kids and seven grandkids so far, one of the things that we pray for them is that our ceiling would be their floor. That they wouldn't have to make all the mistakes or go through all the twists and turns that we did to get where we were. That they wouldn't have to start from the bottom and work their way up. That, that what we've done in our lives, where the Lord has grown us in our lives, that the, where that tops out is where they can start and go from there. And I'm telling you, that's the kind of thing God wants in our heart to do, to set something up so that our ceiling becomes other people's floor. We're not threatened when, when our kids start doing things we've never done or do different things or our, even our little ones, some of the things the little ones do. That's not threatening. That's the answer to prayer. That's what we're looking for. Like, hey, they haven't paid the price yet. No, that's what we want. We want them to do more. We want them to go well beyond what we've ever thought of doing. And that's our prayer. And that's the example that God wants us to set with our lives. Paul said, I'm persuaded that the sincere faith, which lived in your grandmother and mother, now lives in you. Timothy's generationally enhanced faith was alive and well in him. And listen, this is important. Timothy wasn't just riding on the coattails of a godly grandma, because my grandma's got the stuff together, I know I'm going to be okay. He wasn't even riding on the coattails because he knew his mom knew the Lord. Timothy owned his own faith, and we all have to do that. We can be blessed to have moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas, friends that are believers that are praying for us and standing with us, but we've got to own our faith ourselves. It's not something somebody else can do for us. And Timothy owned his own faith, and he was walking it out each day. He was shaping his decisions every day. And true faith has to be our own. It's meant to be more than just a head knowledge of sin. It's meant to be more than just a theological position. True faith is meant to live in us. That Greek word live, it means in a fixed position of residing in and occupying the house. You see, it's one thing to have something inside of you. It's another thing for it to be occupying the house. And I'm telling you that the faith that God has put in our lives is not meant to stay in a little, little corner or a little closet of our house. It's meant to occupy every part of who we are. And all it's waiting for is us to give it permission to occupy the house, to occupy all of me. This word live in, it's the same word that Paul used to describe how the Holy Spirit lives in us in Romans 8. And it's also the same word for how we're to let the word of Christ dwell in us, according to Colossians 3. How much room are we giving faith to live, dwell in, and especially to occupy our house? Our faith is meant to shape the way we see ourselves as well as the way we approach every situation every day. In Romans 12, it says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. But with sober judgment, think about yourself in accordance to the measure of faith that God has given you. It takes faith to honestly see ourselves. It takes faith to recognize, I need a savior. It takes faith to put our trust in Jesus for our salvation. But that's not the end of the story. After that, many times in Scripture, it says the righteous 
live by faith. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And the righteous live by faith. So I think it's beneficial to properly discern the measure of faith that God has deposited and bestowed upon us. Like perfecting holiness. And that whole process, discerning our measure of faith, comes with development and growth and maturity. But there's a little hidden insight in the vocabulary Paul used here in 2 Timothy. He spoke about the sincere faith that now lives and that resides and occupies in you. That little word in means in a fixed position of useful instrumentality. In other words, a faith that lives in you. He's given us a specific measure of living faith to reside in us for the purpose of being activated, used, experienced, and put in practice. It's not just there. It's not just occupying, meant to be contained in us. It's meant to come out of us. It's meant to be who we are. James 2 says, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. And he said, I'll show you my faith by what I do. At the same time, this little word in, which means in a fixed position of useful instrumentality, also implies a relation to rest. A relation to rest. Being able to rest in the reality of faith's existence within us is a game changer. Too many times we have this thought. Oh, I wish I had more faith. Or I don't have enough faith. Which then becomes an excuse or an accusation for an unanswered prayer. But in 2 Peter 1.3 it says God's divine power has given us Everything. Say everything. everything. God's divine power gives us everything we need for life and godliness through our experiential knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And that tells me that every one of us already has all the faith we need in us in a fixed position of instrumentality and in a relationship to rest. It's in us. We can rest in that. And we get a better understanding of our measure of faith as we get better at resting in it being there. Now, there's always something trying to prevent us from resting. But like Graham Cook loves to say, rest is a weapon. Rest is a weapon. And rest comes from a settled, quiet confidence in God's love and faithfulness to us. In the middle of a storm, we can still keep our rest because he's with us. We don't have to like or enjoy everything that's going on in our lives, but we also don't let it, have to let it take us out of our rest. We can be honest with the Lord and let him know we're not liking it, we're not enjoying it, but I know you've got me and I know you've got this and I know that you won't let me go and I know somehow, some way, you're gonna work this out. Maybe I'll see it on this side, maybe I won't even understand it until I get to the other side, but I know you've got me and I know you've got this situation and I choose to rest in you. I choose to keep investing and engaging my faith in you. Rest allows our faith to grow in a relational rather than functional experience. And as Paul wrote to Timothy, I speak over us. I am persuaded that this kind of sincere faith resides in us. It's there. Tell your neighbor, you got it. Uh, they might not have believed you. Sometimes from mouth of two or three witnesses. So tell, let somebody else tell them, you got it. 
That faith is in you. You've got the faith you need for whatever you're facing, for whatever you're dealing, for whatever comes down the road 10 years from now. You've got the faith that you need. It is in us. It is in us by the grace of God. Our daughter Faith, uh, we, were we got to FaceTime with her yesterday, so fun. Other side of the world and talking to her on your phone. Just an amazing, amazing day that we did. When we, li when we lived in the, this is a rabbit, but when we lived in the Philippines, uh, 88 to 90, we would call home and talk for 10 minutes and pay $60 for a landline phone call. And we talked to Faith yesterday for 30 or 40 minutes for free and got to see her face while we were doing it. Amazing. She, she, sent, uh, she sent me a, uh, a text this week and it had an Oswald Chambers quote in it. And it said, always be in a state of expectancy and see that you leave room for God to come in as he likes. Always be in a state of expectancy and see that you leave room for God to come in as he likes. That's the baseline for true faith that leads to steadfast faithfulness in our lives. Leave room for God to come in as he likes. Our faith doesn't ever force God's hand. It's not like, okay, God, now I'm going to play my faith card and you've got to do it. I, I, I think sometimes people do that with fasting. You know, they're, they're stuck. They're in a hard situation. It's not working out. They've been praying to God. Nothing's still not changing. So it's like, okay, God. It's going to happen now because I'm going to fast. And when I fast, you're going to have to do that. You're going to have to, you're going to have to do your thing there because I'm, you see me, I'm fasting here, God. Now I've done that a few times in my life. And what I found out every one of the times I did it like that is I just ended up hungry. <laughs> there have been a couple of times in my life though, where I felt God lead me into a fast and it was easier than those other times. And on the other side, I was a different person and the situation changed. So faith isn't forcing God into something, but I was working on this um, uh, on Wednesday. I've been working on this, started into it Tuesday, was working on it Wednesday, and it was kind of just in the you know, early developmental stages. About two o'clock on Thursday morning, God woke me up, and man, he just started speaking to me about faith, and he started downloading things, and it was, at first I thought, okay, I'll remember then when I woke up, and then it was like, nope, I better get up right now, and so... I didn't have it clear enough to type it out yet, so I just started putting notes in my phone just so I could remember the things that he was saying. And he was speaking about faith because I, it was like, I know we can't, our faith doesn't force God to do something. But then he just started unlayering from Abraham forward how people's choices for faith changed things, how he responds to our faith, how he's moved by people's faith. Jesus' first public miracle, turning water into wine. That happened after he seemingly denied his mother's request. She came to him and said, hey, they're out of wine, do something. And Jesus looked at her and he said, it's not my time. To which Mary looked at the servants and said, just do whatever he tells you to do. <laughs> she wasn't taking no for an answer. And the first miracle took place and happened right there. Hey, and when it comes to our measure of faith, rest in this truth too. Quality is more significant than quantity. Amen. Quality is more significant than quantity. Jesus said just a mustard seed of faith can move trees and mountains. True faith is not about wishful thinking. Instead, it's an acted upon choice built on our trust in God. In Matthew 8, there's a story of a Roman centurion who came to Jesus and he had a servant 
that needed healing. And he came to Jesus and asked Jesus if he would come to his house and heal the servant. Jesus said, yes, I will. And then the centurion said, but you actually, you don't need to come to my house. I'm a man under authority. I know if you just speak the word, it will be done. Just speak the word. And Jesus marveled. It said, Jesus was astonished and said, I tell you the truth. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. And then he looked at the centurion and he said, it will be done just as you believed it would. In the next chapter, Matthew 9, before restoring the sight of two blind men that came to Jesus, Jesus told them, according to your faith, it'll be done to you. And those two guys walked away seeing. In Luke 8, there was a woman that had been suffering with a health condition for 12 years. And she had done everything she knew to do. She'd paid the doctors all her money and she wasn't better yet. And Jesus was coming through town and she had the thought in her mind, if I could just get through the crowd and touch the hem of his garment, I could be healed. So she had that thought. Well, there was a man named Jairus that had come to Jesus. And Jairus had a daughter that was sick. And Jairus asked Jesus, would you come to my house and pray for my daughter? And Jesus said, I will come. Well, on the way, with the crowd all around him, this woman works her way through the crowd and touches the hem of Jesus' garment, healed instantly. Jesus stops and says, who touched me? The disciples are like, what do you mean who touched you? You're in the middle of a crowd here. Everybody's touching you. He said, no, somebody touched me. Power came out of me. And then that woman came forward and told the story and told what had happened. And Jesus said to her, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Well, he and Jairus go on their way. And before they get to Jairus' house, they come to Jairus and they tell him, it's too late, man. Your daughter's dead. At which point, I'm sure there was a part of Jairus thought, if we hadn't stopped for that woman back there, we'd have been to my house in time. It, it, just, it, does, it just something like that had to happen. But he looked at Jesus and Jesus said, don't be afraid. Just believe and your daughter will be healed. And they got to the house, and sure enough, the daughter was dead, but not for long, because Jesus raised her from the dead. Let me chase this rabbit just a little further. Relational faith produces expectancy rather than expectations. Sometimes I get carried away with words, but I'm telling you there is a night and day difference between expectancy and expectations. Expectations come from us working out our own math problem. If I do this, God will do this every time. But true faith doesn't work like that. Sure enough, without faith, it's impossible to please God. But expectancy always creates and leaves room for God to come in as he likes. One of the healthiest standards of true faith ever spoken was by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they stood before King Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. They told him, if we're thrown into that blazing furnace, which was so hot that the soldiers that threw them in there shortly thereafter died just getting close to, that, that's how hot it was. They said, if we're thrown into there, the God we serve is able to save us from it and he will rescue us from your hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. Our God is able. He will rescue us. But even if he doesn't do it in our time, in our slot, in our way, we're not going any other way. We're not putting our trust in any other thing. Well, those three guys got thrown into the fire. 
And then suddenly there were four in the fire. And then those three walked out, not even smelling like smoke. Our God is able. He will deliver us. But even if it doesn't look like we think it should, we will keep our trust in him. The Amplified defines faith as the leaning of the entire human personality on God in Christ Jesus in absolute trust and confidence in his power, wisdom, and goodness. And in the Amplified, Colossians 2, 6, and 7 reads like this. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, which is by grace through faith, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, walk in union with him, reflecting his character in the things you do and say, and living lives that lead others away from sin, having been deeply rooted in him and now being continually built up in him and becoming increasingly more established in your faith, just as you were taught and overflowing in it with gratitude. You see the progression there? That's the kind of sincere faith Paul saw and remembered and knew that Timothy had. But interestingly... Even that kind of faith still needs to be stirred up from time to time. 2 Timothy 1, verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Paul knew pastoring the fellowship of believers in Ephesus was not easy. And he was aware of the level of stuff Timothy was having to deal with there. Paul was also well aware of the drain all that can have on even steadfast faithfulness. So early in this letter, he included a reminder. Timothy would have read it this way. Timothy, I call you up severely into a fixed place in your mind. In other words, Paul was reminding Timothy to push the up button and get above the fray. You know, when you're right in the middle of it, the way things look can be so overwhelming. But when you, we allow ourselves to get up above it, when we allow ourselves to be seated with Christ, we allow ourselves to set our hearts and our minds on things above where Christ is seated, and we let ourselves get into that spot where we are seated with him, even right now in the heavenlies, and look down on our situation, things change. It changes the way it looks. And that's what Paul was telling Timothy. I remind you, push the up button, get above the fray, so that you can fan into flame the gift of God, the charisma, his spiritual endowment. The Amplified translates it, the gracious gift of God, the inner fire in you. Like our measure of faith, God has given us each a specific gift mix. There are some people that do have more gifts than others, but we're all gifted in accordance to what God knows we can handle. And each of us is accountable to God for how we steward the gifts he's given us. Like our measure of faith, each of our gifts comes with exponential growth potential. And both our faith and our gifts increase and grow as we use them. Now, when we're in a season of manifestation and demonstration, our gifts and functioning our gifts can be so fun. I mean, it's just happening so easy. Everywhere we go, we're just using them. Everybody sees them. We love it. It's going well. It's wonderful. But then there's those other seasons, the seasons of hiddenness. And our gifts are still there because the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. But the blazing fire of our gifts can sometimes become like a flickering flame that needs to be rekindled. I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. The King James Version says to stir up the gift. The Amplified says rekindle the embers, fan the flame, and keep it burning. Fan into flame is a picturesque Greek word that comes from the combination of two words. Up severely into living lightning. Up severely into living lightning. And that day, 
embers were kept slowly burning so that they could be fanned into flame as needed. And like in the natural, a fire may look to be out until a wind hits the embers or until they get stirred up. And then suddenly, there's a fire burning again. We've had been on lookout for that uh, for quite a while with the dryness that's been here, the burn band that's there, because it just takes a little spark to start a whole field on fire. There's a suddenly, there's a suddenly connected to our gifts that God has built in. Sometimes in order to access that, we have to fan the flames, especially in seasons of hiddenness. In seasons of hiddenness, it's good to know how to keep the inner fire of our gifts slowly burning. How can we do that? Well, one of the things that you can do in a season of hiddenness is, is if you understand the gift that you're, study about it, learn about it, find it in the scripture, look through history, find other people that have functioned and moved and operated that gift and look at how it worked in their lives. Just increase your knowledge of that gift. But then take the next step and ask, okay, Lord, I see all that. I see that's how that's working in their life. But what's it supposed to look like in mine? Because you don't make clones. There's not two snowflakes the same. So although we might have made the same gift as these people that have lived throughout history, what does it look like in me? What's the release of it in me? And you're just asking and you're wrestling that with the Lord and working it out. Another thing that we can do, even in a scene of, of hiddenness, is to keep practicing, practicing, practicing our gifts. You talking about practice? Yeah, I'm talking about practice. A couple Christmases ago, I bought myself a putting mat. Now, I've been playing golf for a bunch of years, and I had this revelation that if I was going to get better, I should probably practice more. But it's not realistic to go to the golf course and do all of that, and 30-something years into uh, just practicing a little bit on the day that I played was not making a difference. You know, a golf hole can be 400 yards, and you can get on the green 398 yards in two shots, and then take three or four to get the last two yards. And I'm telling you what, it is so frustrating to play golf like that. So I thought, if I'm gonna get better, I need to be a better putter. So I got that putting mat, and now for the last little more than a year, um, four or five days a week, I go back there and I just put some balls, five, 10, 15, 20 at a time, make 20, 30 in a row, and then I'm okay, I'm going to the next thing. But I've been practicing, practicing, practicing. Well, last year, about uh, July, uh, played in a tournament, a four-day tournament on the Fourth day of the tournament, what I'd been practicing since January, on that day, it was like, there it is, that's happening. But since July, it hadn't happened like that again, until two weeks ago. And on two weeks ago, it was like, now there we are, that's it right there. I was making those putts, just, I, I mean, as I got over them, I was like, this is just like in my, in my back room of my house. And I just, they were just going right in the hole. It is much funner to play that way, but here's the point. That's over a year worth of practice, and it worked out in one round so far. But I'm staying with it because I think it's going to make a difference. And our gifts, our gifts are like that too. The, the first month I started practicing, I mean, I changed some things that I was doing in putting, but my putting was still just what my putting was. Even more than a year later, it's a little better. But it's not like I've mastered it now and I've got it. I'm going to keep practicing every day. I'm trying to just get it in muscle memory inside of me. And I think that's what God wants with our gifts too. It's important in the seasons of manifestation as well as in the seasons of hiddenness to keep practicing the release and the use of our gifts. We can also, on the other side of practicing, evaluate. Okay, I did it. How did that turn out? That worked great. Or, mm, that wasn't so good. Learn from it. it. We're not required to get it perfect and right every time. It's a learning process. 
And so evaluate, take the time to evaluate. What could I have done better? What could I have done different? Try that the next time. Keep working the process. And then the other thing that we can do to keep our gifts on a slow burn, even when they're not seeming to get wide open manifestation, is keep reminding ourselves that God has given us these gifts to use. So he will open the door. He will bring people across my path. He'll bring situations where my gift is needed for the purpose of advancing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Verse 7. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Again, Paul was aware of the resistance Timothy was experiencing. Ephesus was a regional center for cultic worship. In fact, the, the temple of Artemis Diana, there was one of, at the time, one of the seven wonders of the world. And that was right in the town where Timothy was pastoring. There was also opposition from the Jewish community. Even in Ephesus, the Jewish community was not excited about these people that were uh, leaving their Jewish faith to become Christians. And then there were the Christians from Jerusalem that were coming behind Paul every place he went. They'd given their life to Christ, but they were still holding on to their religiosity. And so they're saying, you can follow Christ, but you still got to do this, and you still got to do this, and you still got to do this. And Paul's message is too simple. It's not just love God, love people. There's all these rules you still got to follow, even if you give your life to Christ. That spirit's still around today. And Paul didn't want Timothy to be intimidated by any of that. Paul's own instinct in the face of resistance and opposition was to press directly into it. Oh yeah, you're gonna say something to me, I'm coming right back at you. That's the way Paul was. But most of us are not that way. And Paul knew that Timothy couldn't afford to give in to the influence of a spirit of timidity. A spirit of timidity. That Greek word for spirit means a current, an, uh, of air, a breath, a breeze. And to this very day, timidity can be a current that just pushes us along. Sometimes it's only a quick passing thought. Sometimes it's just a persistent doubt. But however it comes, we all need to recognize and be on alert for that influence and then stop listening and believing it. A spirit of timidity is most often translated as the spirit of fear. And in Greek, this word for fear means faithless and fearful. The Amplified says, a spirit of timidity, of cowardice, of craven and cringing and fawning fear. I wanted to share that because I wanted to make timidity as unappealing as possible. A spirit of timidity, of cowardice, of craven and cringing and fawning fear. The dictionary says timidity is lacking self-assurance, lacking courage, lacking bravery, easily alarmed, shy. A couple years that Cindy and I lived in the uh, Philippine Refugee Processing Center, 88 to 90, uh, 12,000 refugees there, most of them coming to the United States in six to nine months once they got to the camp. Uh, There's lots of training going on, English language training, job skill training, there was all kinds of things like that going on. But one of the common phrases that was taught to the littlest all the way up was when you get to America, if you shy, you die. You got to go get it. In other words, they're telling you, it's not just going to be handed to you and you can't just be back and say, I don't know, how. you got to go get it. A spirit of timidity wants to keep us shy. But the spirit of, that God's given to us is the spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Whenever a spirit of timidity shows up, 
I want to tell you that there's also a different current of air, a different breath, a different breeze blowing over us and from within us. It's the Holy Spirit. And it's an open invitation into the truth. And it's an open invitation into I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Even right now, as I'm speaking about this, I believe the Holy Spirit is moving against and targeting timidity in us. Let it go. Let it go. And receive the spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. The spirit of power, dunamis, spiritual, superatomic-like power, specifically for miraculous works. The spirit of love, agape, unconditional, never-ending, never-fading, perfect love that's ours apart from anything related to our performance. It's ours because God is love and God loves us. The spirit of self-discipline, sophronismas, self-discipline, self-control, a sound mind from the word that means making all that happen. Self-discipline results from the inside out. It's a renewing, it's a transformation. And like Paul wrote to Timothy, I remind all of us, push the up button, go up severely, look again and see it differently. We serve a God for whom nothing is impossible. And the faith and the gifts God has given us are meant to be put to use by us, not by somebody else. What he's given to us is meant to be put to use by us. But if for whatever reason we've stepped back from our faith or we've stepped away from actively using our gifts, one breath at a time, one poke at a time, we can rekindle the flame of God's living work in our hearts and in our lives. You heard it earlier, I'm going to say it again. It's right here in my notes. Our God gives us beauty for ashes. Our God gives us beauty for ashes. He's given us a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline, not only for our own good, but also because all of creation is yearning for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. And each of us is part of the answer to that yearning. We're all called to be people who openly live out and leave a legacy of steadfast faithfulness. Faithfulness. We're also invited to be people who are engaged in the increase that comes with enlarge, stretch out, do not hold back, lengthen, strengthen. So let's keep our faith alive and well in us and let's keep stirring up and using the gifts that God has given us for his name's sake and for his glory. Let's stand together. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for this letter that you put on Paul's heart to write to Timothy in 67, 68 AD, whenever it was, that is still so relevant and alive for us today. Thank you, Lord, that it was captured and saved in your word and that now we can have it and study and learn from it and apply it. Thank you, Lord, that none of us, none of us are without gifts. None of us are without faith. You have deposited faith in our lives a measure of faith, uniquely ours. You've deposited gifts in our lives, a gift mix uniquely ours to be used for your kingdom and your work. And I thank you, Lord, that every time that spirit of timidity tries to quench or put out the flame, we have a better option. 
We can receive the spirit of power, of love, of self-discipline. We can push the up button. We can go into a different place, see it differently. And we can allow your spirit to be the breath, the blast, the breeze that's affecting and moving us each day. I thank you, Lord, that you're so faithful to respond to us like that. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. Keep stirring up our faith, stirring up our gifts so we can be the people, the fullest expression of the people that you've created us to be. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, Lord.